0: Welcome to Rez. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Mason. I'm the lead pastor here. Hope you guys have had a good week. Um, I got to go to Canada this week, up to uh, Alberta, uh, in Calgary, and Banff National Park, to be a part of the last part of a mission trip that was started by uh, one of our members, uh, Cleve Persinger. Uh, it's called Creative Missions. And what they do is they take a team of creatives, so like a team of sort of church communications, church tech people, and they go every year to an under-resourced place somewhere in, I would say the country, but I guess North America now, uh, somewhere in North America and serve churches for free for a whole week. And they do all kinds of websites and logos and the sorts of stuff that a lot of churches struggle with. And so last year he asked me to sort of come on board and just sort of um, sort of help shepherd the team and, and, and pastor the, these creatives and, and let them know they're valued and sort of provide a theology for, for the work that they do. And um, it's hard, man. Last year, I had to fly out to Yellowstone to preach. And this year, I had to fly out to Banff to preach. I mean, he's got me suffering for the gospel um, in ways I never thought I would. But uh, I'm just honored to be a part of it. Laura was there this year. Uh, she's always there. Cleve's always there. Cass has been there. So there's a bunch of folks in our church who are a part of it. It's a great thing that encourages a lot of people. Um, so we're in Mark, uh, Mark chapter 14 today. The title of today's sermon is the First Supper, uh, instead of the Last Supper, and we are. Uh, I want to challenge. I was thinking about this as Scott was reading the sermon text, which he did a great job of, by the way. Uh, as he was reading the sermon text, I was thinking about how uh, I. I don't want to take for granted uh, the rest of this sermon series. All right, we've been in Mark for a really long time. We've been preaching through Mark for uh, about you know the whole all of 2018. But we're really getting to the part of Mark where our king is distinguished from everyone else in the world, right? We're getting to the part of Mark where he suffers and dies on the behalf of sinners. And I want us to not just go through this story as if we know it already and, well, I know this gospel story. I want to get to something that's practical. But I want us to know that our life doesn't change from practical advice. Our lives change when we see Jesus lifted up in them. And so, my heart for us this morning, and my hope for us this morning, and as we finish these uh, few weeks that are left in this series, is to lean in and press into the Word of God and meet Jesus. You know, I, I really love holidays. Uh, my two favorites are, are Christmas and Easter. And so, um, you know, obviously, when we as Christians gather for Christmas, we're thinking about the incarnation. Uh, the, the birth of Christ into the world. Uh, we're thinking about sort of all that comes with that. We're also thinking about the fact that the one who came as a baby will one day come again as a conquering king. And I love Easter, right? And we obviously know that we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. So uh, we're celebrating that our death has been defeated because Christ has defeated death on our behalf. We, we celebrate the fact that Jesus is victorious. And we're sort of waiting for the reality of a final resurrection, so we're sort of, um, you know, at Christmas, sort of between revelations, if you will, right? Christ has come in the incarnation and Christ will come again. So at Christmas, we're sort of looking back to his coming and then looking ahead to his coming again. And just like at Easter, right? There was a resurrection. We look back to that resurrection. We, we know that Christ was bodily resurrected, that a physical body walked out of a physical tomb. But we also look ahead knowing that Christ's resurrection, as Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians, was just a foretaste of the future resurrection. So we know that because Christ is resurrected, because he got up and walked out of the grave, so too will we get up and walk out of the grave. So my favorite thing sort of about that holiday is it creates a sort of buzz, right? There's a a, a firm hope that something has happened in the past and an assurance that it will happen again in the future. Much like this firm hope that we receive of looking back and looking ahead and knowing how God will act, That would be how the celebration of the Passover would be in ancient Jerusalem. It was a time of great excitement, of great expectation, because the Lord has acted. The Lord has delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt, and they believe that one day the Lord will involve himself in the human story once more. All these people are buzzing to Jerusalem. As I said either last week or the week before, that a city the size of Charleston becomes a city the size of Cincinnati when people from all over the ancient world descend on Jerusalem to observe the Passover. There's a buzz in the streets. But there's someone else in the streets. Jesus the Nazarene. He has come to Jerusalem fully aware that he, in fact, was the one who is coming to accomplish the Passover hope. The hope that all these Israelites had that one day God would intervene in human history again is coming true in the body of Christ. As he's walking around, the buzz that's all around him that one day Christ will return, or sorry, one day a Messiah will come, one day a conquering king will be among us. That hope that they all held so dear was coming true, and no one knew it. Last week at Bethany, this woman we know to be married, sister of Lazarus, anoints Christ's body for burial. This week, in what has come to be known as the Last Supper, Jesus, having been anointed for his burial, is offering his body in death. Our text this morning makes one thing abundantly clear. Christ is no tragic hero. He is no victim of circumstance. He is going where only he is willing to go to do what only he is able to do. A sort of main idea for us this morning is that Christ is guiding all of this with perfect intentionality and immeasurable grace. Through his betrayal, he will accomplish His desired ends. He will become to His people their Passover Lamb. He will be betrayed. He will die. And He will not be in vain. Look with me in Mark 14. And as we look, I, I want us to think of this Lord's Supper as a sort of first supper. I want us together to come boldly to the throne of grace. I want us to come face to face with the risen Lamb that we all may live. And I want us, church, to love this story more Every time we hear it. Verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare you for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of that house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples went, set out, and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Verses 12 through 16 are sort of preparatory for the rest of the text. I've subtitled those verses, Find the Man, right? Find the man. If you've read the story of, of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he sends two of his disciples ahead before them to go find a, a donkey, right? And to bring that donkey to him. And so I just love how similar this passage begins. He sends two of his disciples out, and he says, Go into the city, find a man carrying a jar of water, and he'll meet you. Follow him wherever he enters. Say the master of that house, teacher, says this, you know, where's my guest room? Perhaps Jesus has made some prior provision, or perhaps this is a moment of supernatural provision. We don't really know, but we do know this. Two disciples are sent out by Christ to go and find a man carrying water in a city of about 250,000 people. I imagine, I, I wonder, and this is just pure speculation, this isn't in the Bible, so don't write this down. I wonder if it's the same two people who went after the donkey, Right, It's like they go after the donkey, like, we ain't never going to find a donkey. And if we find it sitting there, it's like someone owns it. It'd be like me going out and taking your car and being like, the Lord needs it. Thanks. Bye. Like, no, you just stole my car, you know? And so I wonder if it's the same two guys, like, well, we found the donkey last time. So, you know, let's just walk around until we find someone with water and see, see what he says. And so there's a little bit of danger there because as we know at this point in the story, Jesus is what? A really wanted man. And so um, they're going to ask, you know, who is this for? What's going on? And they're just going to have to have faith that Jesus has their provision in. In mind for them. So they go out just as he instructed, and of course, they find a place to prepare the Passover just as he said. I can't help but notice that all of this, this super spiritual stuff, right, that we're about to see, is kicked off by two disciples who just did what Jesus told them to before they knew how it was going to turn out. This whole thing is kicked off by two disciples who just did what Jesus told them to before they knew how it was going to turn out. I think most of us would follow Jesus if we thought it would bring us more happiness, if we thought it would bring us more joy, and if we thought it would bring us financial gain. But what happens when it doesn't bring us any of those things in the short term? These disciples had to say, you know what, this seems kind of odd, but I'm willing to do it. And when I look back at my life, some of you know my story, I'm not going to go into it this morning. But there are certain times where you make decisions and you don't think that decision is going to immediately be helpful, but you know it's the right thing to do and you just have to trust that God's going to meet you on the other side of that decision. right? Whether it's coming back to West Virginia right, and starting a church, there are things that you don't know are going to be there on the back end, that you're because, but you're trusting God on the front end and he can make much out of our very little. I can't help but notice that these two disciples who did what Jesus asked them to before they knew how it would turn out are the ones who kick off the Last Supper. Sometimes you have to find the guy with the water before you know how the homeowner is going to respond. Now with this preparation, they found the guy as the Lord would have it. They, have, they found a house where they went and prepared the Passover Meal Now, Mark, as he always does, speaks with brevity and he just focuses on the things that are absolutely necessary. And so what we have in Mark's gospel is not a full account of the entire meal. Mark actually jumps into the Passover meal about two-thirds, three-fourths of the way through the meal and then begins to carry out two themes in his teaching on the text. The first thing that Mark focuses on is this idea, this theme of betrayal this theme of betrayal. And the second thing that Mark focuses on is the way Christ interprets the third cup of wine. How do we know it's the third cup of wine in the feast? We'll get there in just a moment. Look with me in verses 17 through 21. And when it was evening, he came with the 12, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. So it's evening, they come to the twelve, they're reclining at the table, they're already eating. Now, what had to happen to get to this point of the meal? Bear with me for just a moment. What would have already happened would be the head of the house would have stood up before the whole house, and we believe there are more than just the twelve there. So there are there are kids there there whoever the own the home is there so there's a there's a crew of people all sort of observing the Passover the host which would be Jesus stands up and gives a sort of blessing and then after that blessing the kid sort of I think it's the oldest son in the room has been prepped beforehand that he is to stand up and ask a question he is to say teacher or father or whatever why is this night different than other nights. And as soon as he asks, why is this night different than other nights, the teacher, the host, begins to explain why this night is different. Then they drink the first cup of wine, and then the meal begins. The food would be brought in. What's the food? Unleavened bread, bitter herbs, greens, stewed fruit, and of course, the roasted lamb. As you can assume, each of these dishes in the Passover meal is just absolutely packed full of Symbolism, for instance, the bitter herbs represent the bitterness of slavery that God's people found themselves in in Egypt for so long. All that to say, we're likely at the part of the meal, the text says, where they dipping bread, right? He says, it's one of the 12 who is dipping bread, verse 20, who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes, it's written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So up until now, I mean, everything's kind of going pretty normally in terms of the Passover meal. They've they've had their blessing. They've eaten their food. They've drank their first cup of wine. They've got the same ingredients they always have. They've got the roast lamb like they always have and they're, they're, they're eating together, and then Jesus is sort of reappropriating those bitter herbs, right? So those bitter herbs represent slavery, but to Jesus, and in these moments and forevermore, they're going to represent something a little more intimate. They're going to represent betrayal and bitterness. He's dipping his bread, we can presume, in the bitter herbs, and he says something that really kills the vibe of the night. He really brings this Passover celebration down a few notches by saying one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. And I wonder if the 12 were like, you know what, man? I knew we shouldn't have gone and found some random dude on the street and said, can we come stay at your house? Because he's a snitch, man. He's no good. I came and we found this guy, and now he's going to turn us in. And so they, got, they probably start thinking, well, so, you know, there's a bunch of us eating at the table. There's a bunch of us in the house. We're okay. And, but they're sort of introspective, right? Is it I, master? Is it I who will betray me? And he said to them, it's one of the 12, it's one of the 12. It's one of the ones who followed me closely. It's one of the ones who have been with me through this whole ministry, through the ups and the downs. It's one of you guys. But verse 21 says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of God. Him. Verse twenty-one is really important and immediately helpful if you're wondering about where does sort of the, the divine will of God and my own actions like where do they come into play right because we know that we're not r- sort of robots that this sovereign God manipulates into doing what He wants us to do we know that we are humans who have volition but we also know that we're not acting independently of God. That God's not out there sort of just watching down and seeing what we decide to do. And so sometimes we can wonder, you know, where does God's action and sort of my action begin and end? And this verse is one that helps us think of that, right? Jesus is saying, one of the twelve who is dipping this bread with me is going to betray me. But don't get it twisted, right? That the Son of Man is giving himself up. that The Son of Man isn't sort of caught up in some scheme that he has no power over. The Son of Man goes, what does the text say? As it is written of him. The Son of Man is going in such a path that has been prophesied and foretold and sort of come out of the heart, of, heart and mind of Father God himself, so Jesus, in essence, is saying, one of you guys are going to betray me, but don't think that you're all that, because I'm going where only I can go, because this is what's been written of me. This isn't your plan, Jesus says, this is my plan. But does that absolve Judas, spoiler, that's who does it, does this absolve Judas of his responsibility? Absolutely not. Jesus, or Judas, sorry, is still morally culpable. The Son of Man is going on his own volition. No one's going to make him do something or catch him off guard. The Son of Man is acting in accordance with God's plan. The Son of Man is not defeated by Judas. The Son of Man will not be defeated by Pilate because the Son of Man is doing something that requires death. The Son of Man is doing something that requires being given unto death. The Son of Man is doing something that they have no clue about. That does not remove Judas' moral culpability. He betrayed Christ. He found money more attractive than Christ. He found comfort and power more attractive than Christ. Church, let me just encourage you that God is completely in control and humans are completely responsible for all of our actions. Which is it? Is God in control or are humans responsible? Yes, (laughs) both are true. But this Passover meal, unlike any other, is just getting started. Look with me in verse 22. As they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it. Okay, still normal here, by the way. Nothing has changed in terms of the, the liturgy of the Passover. He, he breaks the bread and he gives it to them, and this is where it gets not normal. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Without getting too detailed, we can note there are four sort of axioms, and if you're taking notes, I'd recommend writing this down, around which the entire celebration takes place. The whole Passover sort of rises and falls and rotates around four axioms, and those are found in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. Exodus 6, 6 through 7. So allow me really quickly to read uh, those verses and then explain sort of the four axioms, the four cups of the Passover meal. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The four axioms work themselves out as four toasts, four cups within the meal. The first cup essentially says, I will bring you out. I will bring you out. It's a cup of rescue. The second cup, when you get to the second cup of the meal, the second toast, the people say, I will deliver you from slavery. I will deliver you from slavery. God's people are celebrating the fact that he has freed them from Egyptian bondage. The third cup means I will redeem you. I will redeem you. The fourth cup is I will take you to be my people. And it goes on, I didn't read this, but he goes on to talk about how I will take you to be my people and we will be in the land that I promised to your father Abraham, right? This sort of, I will be yours and you will be mine and we will live together and we will walk together and we will do everything together and the city will not need light because the God in it will be the light and the lion will lay down with the lamb and all these beautiful truths that we know are coming. So where are we in the meal? We know that the first two cups have already been drunk. Mark doesn't talk about that, Mark just sort of assumes that the reader of the day understands that. They've already drank the first cup, they've celebrated the fact that God would come and rescue them. They've already drank the second cup, they've celebrated the fact that they'll be freed from their slavery, and here we are at the third cup. And the third cup is the cup of redemption. The third cup is the cup in which they sort of raise a toast and say, our God will redeem us, that one will come. He will be our redeemer. He will buy us back from our enemy. He will sort of deliver us ultimately from the great evil. They've thought about these truths, they've worshipped in the truths that God would come and that God would rescue them. And now Jesus does something at this Passover meal that no one ever could have expected. And if you are a religious Jew, this is perhaps the most sacrilegious thing that he has done yet. If you don't understand that he is in fact fulfilling the Passover meal. Verse 22, he takes the bread and he's supposed to say something about how the Lord gives us bread from the ground. But he breaks it and he says... This is my body. And I, they got to be kind of looking at each other like, this is body. Right? We have spiritualized this to the point where I don't think we get how odd this was in the room that night. Right? He's supposed to say everyone knows kind of the script that he's going to say. You know what I mean? Like every Christmas we gather at my grandma's house and and we read the Bible story. And we all know what's coming in Luke 2. And in those days when I had a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And and so we kind of know the script of our holidays. And so there's a sort of script that they're expecting about um, sort of God providing bread from the ground. And then Jesus says, this is my body. Take it and eat it. Verse 23, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. He takes that third cup, that cup of redemption, and he holds it up, and he says in verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. What is the third cup? What is the cup of redemption? Jesus takes the cup, and he holds it up, and he says the cup of redemption is is the cup of my blood and it will be poured out for many there will be blood shed jesus says my blood will be spilled and i am fulfilling the hope of the passover jesus eats the bitter herbs and is knowing that he will be betrayed by one he loves and by one he is feeding in those moments. Jesus knows that though there is a spotless, unblemished lamb on the table, Jesus, he himself is the spotless, unblemished lamb. And that as Christ looks at that lamb that, sack, that symbolizes the lamb that was killed and whose blood was put over the post of Israelites' doors so that the Lord would pass over them as he brings judgment to the pagan nation of Egypt and delivers them, that the lamb that this lamb's blood would so too be over God's people and mark their deliverance from God's judgment. Jesus knows that the fate of the lamb on the table is the fate that he is about to face this very week. My blood will be poured out for many, for me, for you, and for all who call on the name of Christ. If you're taking notes, write down Jeremiah 31 or sorry, 31, verses 31 through 34. Let me read them really quickly. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It's not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. This is the covenant I will make. He said, it's not like the time I brought them out of Egypt. I made a covenant with them, they broke it anyways. But this is the covenant I'm going to make in those days, looking ahead to when Christ would come. I will put my law where? Within them. And I will write my law on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Jesus, our better king, has come to inaugurate this new covenant When we hear new covenant believer, right, that means we are Christians in this new covenant that God has made with humanity. Jesus holds up that cup. This is the blood of the covenant, that when you take this cup and when you drink this cup, when you drink my blood, right, when my blood goes sort of into you, when you are in me, when I am in you, that you are a part of this new covenant. Imagine the sort of... um, The the power of this moment, right, that Jesus is standing there and saying for thousands of years people have drank this cup in the hope of redemption. And here I'm holding it up saying this cup is my blood and I will pour it out for many. Verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. As I said, there are four cups The fourth cup is a um, cup that celebrates that that God will be with his people, right? They will be together uh, in his land. There is one more cup that would always be drank in the Passover celebration. It's the cup that celebrates this renewed relationship with God. But Jesus says basically this, uh, let's hold off on the fourth cup. Let's hold off on the fourth cup today. I will drink that cup but I'll drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And this is one of my favorite moments of the text this morning because it threads each and every one of us who are in Christ this morning into this story because the third cup, it's only the apostles sitting around Christ and really understanding what's going on. But the fourth cup, we will be at the table. I'll be there and you'll be there and the lamb who was slain will be victorious. The lamb himself will be at the table, and we will drink that fourth cup together. Though this was a last supper, though this was the last meal, the last fellowship Christ would have with his apostles, though it is becoming abundantly clear that he is about to die, this is also a first supper. Because a meal is being established that all will eat and drink, that all of his people will eat and drink until he returns, and every time we do it, we're saying, we will soon drink the fourth cup with Christ in the kingdom of God. Luke tells this story, Matthew tells this story, of course it's in all of the Gospels, and in Luke 22, 19, right, this sort of, every time you do this, every time you observe this feast, do this what? In remembrance of me. And so you go to a lot of churches and, you know, they'll have the communion table and it'll say on it, right, in remembrance of me. And so this idea that we do it in remembrance of me. And I I just want to note how powerful that is just for a moment because those are words that I just kind of always glossed over. Like, oh, yeah, I'm remembering Christ when I do this. But in that first century context, that Passover meal that was celebrated every single year with all this buzz and all this hype and all these people, Jesus says every time you gather for this Passover meal, you're not celebrating the Passover and your deliverance from Egypt anymore. You're celebrating me. Every time you gather, every time you do this, every time you observe this, heck, every time you eat and drink, you do this in remembrance of me. You aren't remembering what God has done in Egypt, but you're remembering what I am doing right now, that I am the one who's come to establish this new covenant. Jesus says, I am the one who's come to redeem you from your sins. I am the true and better Moses who will lead you out of slavery and into eternal Freedom. Every time you get together, next year's Passover rolls around, and when you guys gather for the Passover, what are you doing? You're doing this in remembrance of me. As often as you take bread and as often as you take wine, tell the story of the gospel. Tell the story of what's happening. Tell the story of my broken body. Tell the story of my shed blood. Tell the world of my salvation. Worship team, if you guys would lead us to the table and we will follow you in just a moment. An English missionary named Catherine Hankey came down with a serious spell of sickness while on mission in Africa in 1866. And while she was ill, Um, There in 1866, she penned a two-part poem that would be uh, sort of put to music in 1899 and published by a a Methodist Episcopalian uh, publishing house. Perhaps some of you have heard this poem she wrote that was later put to music. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love I love to tell the story because I know it is true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else could do. I love to tell the story. It will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story more wonderful, it seems, than all the golden fancies of all our golden dreams. I love to tell the story, it did so much for me, and that is just the reason I tell it now to thee. I love to tell the story, tis pleasant to repeat, what seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story, for there are some who haven't heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. The last verse is the one that sticks out the most. I love to tell the story, for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. We've heard this story a million times, but today we've heard it a million and one. And today we know how deeply we need Christ. We don't love it a little bit. We love it a lot. Because when Jesus holds up that cup of redemption, we know that he offers it to us today. And the last stanzas, and when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, twill be the old, old story that I have loved so long. When in the scenes of glory I sing the new song, And I think about the scene of glory that awaits all of us who are in Christ. I think about being seated around that table with Him. I think about the marriage supper of the Lamb where we together drink the cup to celebrate that we are God's. We are His people and we dwell with Him. And as we're drinking that, I wonder if our minds will go back to this passage where Christ holds up the cup of redemption and we say, now we hold the cup of fellowship. When I sing these songs of glory and I sing these new, new songs that my mind could never, ever comprehend, I will know that it's that same old story that I have loved so long as we gather for worship week in and week out and sing and confess our sins and and remember our assurance of pardon and preach and eat the Lord's Supper and sing the doxology, as we embrace this story, as we embody this story, as we rehearse liturgically this story, as we do that, we love this story more and more. The inaugural Lord's Supper was attended by traitors and cowards, and we'll talk about that more next week. Yeah, Judas was the most heinous, but they all turned away. No one was there when Jesus needed them to be. They all messed up. They all got scared, and they all ran. Jesus is the only one at the table worth anything. But just like that original supper, the first supper was attended by traitors In cowards, so is the table that you're about to approach. Because this is not a table of merit. It's not a table for the smartest. It's not a table for the richest. It's not a table for the whitest. Not a table for the wealthiest. Not a table for those who don't struggle a whole lot with sin. But it's a table for wretches like me. It's a table for people who don't have their lives together a whole lot. But it's a table for people who know they need grace. We have a lot of problems in the world. And I'm convinced that when we gather around the table, we can begin to solve them. I think when enemies have meals together, something happens. This is a general rule. I'm a part of a leadership cohort in West Virginia and we were at this retreat and we had to, it was, it was really silly, we had to like create an artifact out of clay or play-doh that would be in the museum 50 years from now, sort of telling the story of West Virginia. And I don't think in that, that way. I'm like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever had to do in my life. The dumb Like, I haven't done this since high school, you know. It's like, but I started thinking about it, and I was like, man, I have no idea. You know, all these people are doing, like, legislation they want to pass. And I'm just like, I'm a pastor. I don't even know why I'm here. And um, then I thought, you know what? I think whenever we gather around the table, something happens. And so I thought, you know, I would love for West Virginia in 50 years to be the place that's not like the rest of the country, right? To be a place where, where people are being more polarized and hating each other more and more. But maybe here we can learn to be neighbors. Maybe here we can learn to get, around, get along. So I made a table out of my Play-Doh, and I put it up, and it came time for me to present what my artifact was. I said, I have created a table. <laughs> because it will be in a museum, and when people ask, why do West Virginians get along when they don't agree on anything, I'll tell them it's because we actually invite each other for dinner. And so that was my meaning there, and it was sort of just sort of an acute secular little thing. But I think something happens even more profoundly when we gather around God's table. I believe Christ is spiritually present with us when we approach the table in faith. As we approach the supper, we come as recipients of radical grace. Every sinner who comes to Christ in faith and repentance is welcome at God's table. So we took the supper last week, and usually we do it every other week, but it it would be the oddest thing ever to not take it this week. So we're going to take it together. If you're a follower of Christ, this morning as you approach the table, I hope you approach it with earnest expectation. That you approach it, and you know as we do, we're telling the story, the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Would you pray with me? Father, you are good. You sent your son to die in our place. Lord, don't let us miss the significance of this Passover. Because with every step, our Lord is marching to his death. And as he's sitting with his disciples, in essence, he proclaims, I am the one in whom the Passover is fulfilled. I will drink this cup of redemption. Jesus would drink the cup of your wrath so that we could receive the cup of redemption. Jesus thank you for doing what only you could do. Thank you for not running when I would have run. Thank you for not seeking your own comfort when it would have been so easy to do. Lord, we gather around your table some 2,000 years later in the eager, eager hope that one day you will return and we will drink this fourth cup with you. Father, I pray that there, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you today, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would hear this gospel message, that the body of Jesus will be broken, the body of Jesus would be broken, the blood of Jesus would be shed for many. And though millions have come, there is still room for millions more at the foot of the cross. In Christ's name we pray.